This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret, and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming, only on Hulu. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Randa Melcher, and I'm very pleased to have with me today Dr. Randall Patnode to tell us all about his book, just published by Rutgers University Press, titled The Synchronized Society, Time and Control from Broadcasting to the Internet, which is fascinating. The book traces the history of the synchronous broadcast experience from the 20th century Um, It helps us then understand essentially the transition into this world of synchronous broadcast and out of it into today's asynchronous media to help us understand kind of what was this moment of being a synchronized society? How did it happen? What were the goals um, and what were the impacts of it? So, Randy, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thanks, Marina. They're glad to be here. Before we get into all of the things in the book, would you mind introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this? Sure. I am a professor at Xavier University in Cincinnati, Ohio, Um, and I've been studying uh, communication technology for most of my academic career, so I've published um, research on uh, mostly um, radio, but other forms of broadcasting, the telegraph, other forms of technology, some on the internet, um, all focused on trying to understand the relationship of technology to society. And so why this book? Um, This book came up um, specifically from um, a moment in the library. I was looking through uh, some old magazines. Um, This one was um, Ladies Home Journal, which is monthly, popular monthly magazine in the United States since it was in 1927. And I ran across a poem uh, which were pretty common in magazines in that age. And most of the poetry published back then was what they would call today doggerel, which is um, poetry that's uh, you know not necessarily advanced or high literature, but uh, they're sort of entertainments. And um, I, saw, I saw this poem, and I was really struck by the fact of how the author of the poem had tied into this thing I was studying called radio, and basically what the author does is he ties in the pedestrian everyday experiences of just one day into um, the radio broadcast, what, are, what content is on the radio broadcast. And he simply, it's called As Time, Go, As Time Jogs to the Radio Fan. And it's just a listing of the things that someone has done um, from uh, eating breakfast to uh, giving the baby a bath to having lunch and goes through the entire day and relates each of those actions to a specific broadcast program. And it struck me this sort of correspondence between uh, people's everyday lives, at least as told in this one poem, to um, the, what was being offered on the broadcast at particular times during the day. And so it was, um, what I got curious about was this relationship between 
how the broadcasters stru- structured time and how the audience has responded to it. And so out of this comes a book that's less about the content of broadcasting and more about how broadcasting structures people's time. And then, as you mentioned in the introduction, um, I was also became curious about how this relates to this big change that we went through about the beginning of the 21st century with asynchronous um, types of digital media. Thank you for taking us through, I guess, in some ways, the origin story of the book. It's always an interesting way to sort of see what you were aiming to look at. And this idea of how broadcasting organizes people's time, I think, is um, obviously such a consistent thread throughout the book. But as a starting point, um, this idea of kind of it organizes people's time, right? It's doing something to people's time. It's constraining it in some ways. It's structuring it in some ways. So I'm wondering if you could take us through um, something you talk about towards the beginning of the book about thinking of audience attention of someone sitting down to watch a radio and listen to radio or watch a TV program at a particular time as audience attention in that sense is something we should think of in terms of labor. Um, Can you take us through this? Right. This is um, a very controversial idea, uh, so I don't necessarily uh, offer it as the final answer. But um, it was initially established by Dallas Smythe, who comes out of the Marxist tradition. And he was a a researcher for the Federal Communications Commission back in the middle of the 20th century. And he eventually became an academic. Uh, And he offered uh, this basic idea that um, the time that we use when we are consuming broadcast media is not really our time, but it's the time of whoever's got the messages put in front of us. And primarily, he relates this to the advertising content of mainly television he's talking about at the time, um, which is that um, the broadcast system, because of its synchronous nature, meaning that you have to be there at the time that messages are being delivered, puts you in the audience in this position of having to consume not just the principal content, but really the underlying content, the real reason for broadcasting to exist, which was to deliver the advertising messages. And when you as a consumer of media are put into a position to use your time, which would otherwise be free to be used any way you want it, but when you enter into the broadcasting system, you have to use your time according to the dictates of the broadcast clock, the broadcast schedule, And part of that includes the interruption of the other kinds of content by advertising messages. And Smyth's thinking about this has been echoed by a variety of, well, actually quite a wealth of research since then. Christian Fuchs, Suchali, Eileen Meehan, Mark Andreevich, they've all written about this key question about when we engage in the broadcast experience, uh, what are we actually doing? Um, are we um, uh, really uh, free in doing whatever it is we want? Because we have to pay attention to these messages in order to get the content. Uh, one of the arguments is that this is a kind of labor. My uh, suggested that anytime you're not really free to do what it is you'd otherwise be doing, um, you are working. And he went so far as to say that for most of us, Every waking moment, 
That is, every t- moment that we're not sleeping, we're actually at work. And what he means by work here is that we are um, extending thinking and messages about these products that are being offered and products and services, that we are um, uh, reprocessing brands, extending the identities of brands, and just by ha- being in a position to think about them and to internalize them. So uh, this is the, the controversial position. Um, there are plenty of people who would suggest that uh, this can't be that um, surely people have choices and that they're choosing to engage with this media, which they are, but only to a degree. If you, back in the age of broadcasting, before you had any kind of control over when you received your programming, you had to sit down at the appointed hour in order to consume the program. And then you also had to put up with the interruptions between the program. You could, I suppose, uh, and certainly people did, disappear at those moments, do something else. But to the larger degree, when we talk about the larger population of broadcast audience, um, people sat through it all. And so they became these kinds of uh, associates, partners in the advertising process. And in doing so, um, they received nothing more than the free content, what Dallas Smythe would call the free lunch. Uh, the incentive that's provided to the consumers of broadcast media in order to get them to submit to the advertising experience. So uh, this is an idea that continues to be explored um, both within the Marxist tradition and beyond it. Um, uh, One aspect of it is the degree to which the audience has become a commodity or whether it's become a commodity and it's so what kind of commodity is it? What's being exchanged in exchange for some, you know, what uh, product service or um, reward is being exchanged in terms for this viewing experience? And, and so um, uh, researchers continue to examine this. Uh, and then it comes back to us in the digital world as well, where we uh, once again have to consider what is it that we do when we go online? Uh, we might think that when we go to our social media platform of choice and start encountering messages. We think uh, merely that we're enjoying ourselves. We are being sociable. Uh, We are uh, maybe even producing content at times. Uh, But here too, um, we run into a similar kind of situation. Uh, For the most part, these platforms are free. Access to them is free. And we contribute to the profits of the companies that operate the platforms, but we get no compensation for it other than the so-called free launch, this idea that, well, we get something, we get a reward of sorts, but it then starts raising questions about, well, if, if Facebook is making, uh, you know, billions of dollars each quarter, um, does it owe anything to the people who actually produce the content that supports the platform? And that's the users. Facebook creates no content on its own. So the idea that Dallas Smythe originally started with uh, uh, 70 years ago um, is still with us. Um, and we just have to understand how it applies now to both the the synchronous and the asynchronous forms of media. Mm. 
Thank you for taking us through that. Um, I can see why it's controversial, but also why it's very much worth thinking about and discussing um, and a very useful foundation, I think, for now I'm going to ask you some questions sort of more chronologically going through the period of the rise of the synchronous and then, of course, the switch to asynchronous. Um, I admit kind of coming into this book, I sort of assumed that, oh, the synchronized society comes about because new technology is available. Of course, it's not nearly that simple <laughs> to explain um, the rise of the synchronized society. So could you help us understand the role of things like uncertainty about what's happening in society, concern over workers and politics more broadly, how these sorts of things, especially sort of the end of the 1800s, beginning of the 1900s, played into the rise of the synchronized society? Yeah, my book starts um, in the middle of the 19th century, uh, although you could probably take the ideas back even further. Um, but certainly in the United States at the end of the in the second half of the, the 19th century, we see a convergence of a number of critical factors, uh, the movement of agrarian populations to the cities for greater opportunities, the crush of immigration in several waves in several parts of the country, um, and then just growing industrialization with more mechanization. And all of these things come together to create uh, some uh, issues that fracture society. Uh, we have uh, people on uncertain grounds. You have people um, who, I mean, if you talk about agrarian populations, people who once lived more or less separate from other people. They were out on their farms by themselves. If they met with others, they had to have a greater deal of intentionality about it. They'd have to go to town. They'd have to go to their neighbor's farm. And this required a certain amount of effort. And they may not have been inclined to do that all the time. When they moved to the city, though, they were basically living on top of each other. You couldn't avoid other people if you went out the door. And so this was a different situation that people had to deal with. And it certainly led to a fair amount of conflict. Um, immigration, of course, brought in people of different cultures and languages who then um, uh, the Resident populations had to experience that, and that led to some clashes. And then finally, the last one with industrialization, mechanization, uh, people's jobs being replaced by machines or sometimes being enhanced by machines, but certainly raising some new questions about the role of the individual in this mass society. And out of this comes, towards the end of the 19th century, some theorists who are trying to understand this better, uh, one of them was uh, Gustave Le Bon. He's a French, Frenchman, um, but his uh, ideas circulated widely in the United States. And he's one of the fathers of so-called crowd theory, uh, which, had, which suggested that um, when you put people into large crowds, uh, bad things happen. And so there was certainly uh, plenty of thinking about this and then the people who are running the industrialized system uh, then start thinking about, well, how do we deal with this large population of workers, customers for our services, who are not always um, as well-managed as we might like them to be? And this came, felt particularly in the world of labor, where you know, in the United States anyway, we've been beset by labor difficulties pretty much our whole history 
But certainly in the 19th century, there's um, a long series of labor disputes, strikes, often leading to loss of life. Um, and it was difficult both on the workers and on the employers who were trying to manage the situation. And so they had to come up with some strategies for trying to deal with this unruly population. And they actually tried a number of different uh, ways to sort of quell the situation. Uh, for instance, one of them is the, the institution of the company town, which um, arrives in the latter part of the 19th century. Uh, the most notable of them was uh, the Pullman town, company town in um, uh, outside of Chicago. Uh, Pullman was the um, train car manufacturer, very large company. Uh, we had a lot of trains back then. And uh, they employed a lot of people, they had a big operation. And so Pullman decided to organize um, all of its employees or most of its employees into an organized town. And uh, uh, it was very uh, specified down to uh, the types of housing, the types of windows in the housing. It was kept, kept spotlessly clean. And they thought, well, here's a good way to control the population, just get them to um, accept this kind of environmental uh, control and everything, they will all start to behave better. Uh, they didn't. Um, they were not too happy about the Pullman town. Uh, they struck anyway. And um, uh, the experiment was um, a more or less failure. Um, but um, it also led um, industrial companies to think about other ways to manage unruly labor. And in the, in, uh, as we start mass, uh, as we start entering into a more of a massified society, more products being distributed, more mass production of products. Um, we need more people to produce those products. And this is where we start seeing the development of assembly lines and rationalized manufacture. Uh, and this is the two forms of this that principally grew out, grew out of this idea was, were Taylorism in the early part of uh, the 1900s and Fordism, which is uh, Henry Ford's assembly line. These are two different strategies, but they're of the same uh, approach. Taylorism... Um, put employees under surveillance to see how quickly they could optimally do a particular task and then um, set them to doing it in that amount of time. Uh, Fordism simply established an assembly line which would deliver objects to be assembled at a particular rate and the employees had no control over it so they just had to speed up with the assembly line if they wanted to maintain their jobs. These are both attempts at um, dealing with the vagaries of being a human being and in a work situation where you might lose attention or you might uh, stop working for a moment for any number of reasons. And uh, the industrialists uh, far preferred to have those people constantly at work because if you're constantly at work, you're not going to get into other kinds of trouble. You're not going to stand on the assembly line and chat with somebody about some union grievance or waste time otherwise. These are both efficiency mechanisms that um, certainly help to extend industrialist profits, uh, but they were also control mechanisms. 
and they principally use time as the control mechanism. So this becomes the backdrop then when you move forward into the world of broadcasting, which arrives in 1920. And already in the United States, we'd had the experience of these applications of time management and synchronization to help, at least in the minds of the industrialists, to help manage a chaotic environment. And it turns out that radio as well was a pretty chaotic environment. And one mechanism that helped to make it less chaotic was using time to help uh, structure the experience. So given that there were some larger goals going on in terms of control, in terms of um, busy and keeping people busy um, and organized in a way that was useful to the people in charge, those are some kind of obvious means to a greater end that broadcasting was seen to serve. Um, what were, were there other components, kind of other hopes and goals for broadcasting and what it would produce? And to what extent, I suppose, were those goals realized? Yeah, I'd say that it was a mixed bag in terms of what was realized. Uh, my main point is that the progenitors of broadcasting lived through this era of chaos and disruption in the late 19th century. And they also lived through the experience of temporally organizing society along the lines of Taylorism and Fordism. So they understood, at some degree, how useful temporal organization could be. And furthermore, the act of broadcasting emphasized the temporal qualities of the experience. I mean, in the early days of broadcasting, you had no choice but to experience uh, the communication in the real time that it was actually occurring. And so you can put the two together and create a system that, if you extend it far enough, can create a pretty broad-based temporal organization. Once broadcasters started, broad- I mean, initially broadcasters only broadcast a few day- hours a day, but they moved towards more and more time. And of course, now we know that the they broadcast 24 hours a day on multiple networks. So it became possible through broadcasting to engage virtually all of, of someone's time if, if uh, someone chose to go that far. And we know that um, you know, by the, the 1980s uh, and up through today, um, uh, people were watching the average consumer of broadcasting television anyway was in excess of seven hours. And I always like to think of that as uh, it's like a shift, shift at the plant. Um, you put in your sh- real shift, and then you come home and you put in a second shift, uh, consuming the advertising messages that are offered in the broadcast system. So the greater end uh, for these people may well have been, um, uh, certainly they're creating businesses, uh, but part of the uh, underlying idea behind the business was one in which if we can control people's time, as we've done in the industrial world, we can benefit financially. But it's also possible that we can benefit in other ways. And how much they foresaw this, I'm not sure. But the effect was that because people paid so much 
attention to the broadcast messages that were coming through the radio or the television. They weren't doing other things. They couldn't. They literally had to be at home uh, to receive the radio message because that's where almost all of the radio receivers were. And certainly in the case of television, it was the same thing. So the system, by, na- by because of its synchronous nature, drove a lot of people into the, back into the home. And we talked a lot about this in, in all the commonplace literature about how important radio was to the home and how it was assisting people to create a better home environment. And the home was seen as something different from other kinds of experiences, more troubling kinds of experiences, such as um, being out on the streets or being down at the bar or attending amusements, uh, theater and, and movies, and even going to the playground. All of these things um, were had implied certain kinds of uh, dangers to them. And radio helped to justify bringing people back into the home. And because of that, it had to, at least in, 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 in some ways, um, reduce the kinds of traffic in those other kinds of activities. Mm, very interesting. Obviously, this um, process of sort of rationalizing, of implementing Taylorism, of trying to make broadcasting achieve these goals, um, one of the components needed to do that is regulation, right? Some sort of organized mechanism of figuring out what the rules are. And I found this a really interesting part of the book, um, that there kind of were a bunch of other ways it could have gone. There were various debates over regulation. What impact, if we move chronologically, did World War I in particular have on regulation debates about broadcasting? Right. Um, there, uh, the original regulation for radio in the United States was 1912, after the Titanic disaster, where uh, regulators realized the benefits of radios on ships because one could then use the radio to help uh, ask for help. And that's when they required ships to carry radios. That was the initial regulation. And there wasn't any more until 1927. And that's a big gap. But in the meantime, uh, there were certainly a lot of ideas came forward. Um, and uh, in the United States, of course, adopted a commercialized model for broadcasting, which took this a public interest quality of the electromagnetic spectrum and handed it over to these duly appointed commercial companies, profit-motive companies, um, to do with what they thought was in the best interest of the public. And uh, that was known as the American system, uh, the American way of doing things. Of course, people in Great Britain understand there's a different way to do that. And um, uh, when, the, when the war came about, um, the uh, people in control of the, the system, which was principally um, the military, uh, co- correctly understood that to leave radio in the hands of a bunch of, of uh, largely young, unregulated men so-called amateurs, that was a bad idea. Uh, It was uh, after the Titanic disaster, 
uh, that the amateur radio operators got in on the act and started doing, as people do on social media these days, trying to interfere with uh, the rescue messages. And uh, they saw that this was just not a, a tenable situation, at least with uh, lives on the line in a war fight. And so the government kicked all the amateurs off the air until uh, the war was over. And uh, so that was one thing, is that the amateurs were banned from the airwaves. And it also revealed just how fragile the amateur status was. They didn't have a whole lot of, of um, a stake in the game, although they were oftentimes more skilled at uh, operating their receivers and transmitters than um, the the uh, people in the in the War Department were. Uh, so, um, and really, the amateurs never really recovered their status. They tried to, but they were eventually just relegated in the, in later law. Uh, to the lower frequencies, which uh, were just harder to operate with, did not carry as far. And um, eventually they were just kind of snuffed out, uh, except for, you know, a few people who still uh, enjoy that sort of thing. This left the whole radio landscape to these commercial enterprises. Um, also during the war, um, the government had to decide the best way to develop radio technology, and it was a splintered kind of um, approach. Uh, there were a bunch of companies that each had their own patents to different parts of the technology, and nobody could build a complete system without acquiring the rights to technology from somebody else. And that required a lot of bilateral negotiation. It would require time. And so out of the need for expedience, uh, government um, uh, created uh, Radio Corporation of America to help manage all of these patents and help to um, put together a radio system that would function. And in doing so, what they carried, created was a kind of cartel, um, a bunch of privileged, uh, a few uh, privileged organizations that had access to the intellectual property that would allow them to benefit most from uh, the broadcasting industry on the technology side anyway. So um, that also came out of the, 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 the First World War. Um, and then um, I think also out of this comes just an attitude that's, that uh, in our very peculiar American way decides that, well, you know, uh, big business is the best way to go here. Let's defer to them. Let's let them make the decisions. And from a legislative standpoint, um, the big businesses influenced all the legislation and basically wrote the law in their own favor so that when it came to um, encouraging some kind of diversity or uh, alternate kinds of programming, uh, those were less favored than what the big corporations were already doing. Mm. So given that government was so involved in this, given that the corporations wrote the law, um, given that World War One meant that, you know, amateurs got essentially kicked off and, as you said, didn't really recover. How were audiences, right, the people listening to this, how were they convinced, really, to kind of go along with this structure and synchronization? We as humans have long conceded to uh, the external manipulation and structuring of our time. I have a chapter at the very beginning of the book that talks about 
some of the ways in which uh, uh, organizations or individuals who are trying to exercise some kind of authority over a larger population use time as a mechanism to put them into control. Um, I think I mentioned the Benedictine monks in the fifteenth, sixteenth century um, organized their days according to um, set of bells, and you got up and greeted the bells, and you got up and you responded to those. We used bells um, in most towns in Europe uh, had a bell tower, and uh, that was used for a variety of things, but among them to signal to people when they needed to do particular kinds of things. So uh, we've, this is known as just broadly as time discipline. We've been disciplined by external uh, uses of time, whether it's the actual clock or just uh, some other kind of uh, temporal tool. Um, this idea of time discipline gains more traction in the late 19th century with those industrialized objectives I mentioned before. And um, so people are sort of already accustomed to responding to an external delivery of time, but it's always a question about, you know, who controls that and what kind of control it provides to those organizations and individuals. There was some resistance to this all along. There's always been resistance to people trying to push time upon you. In my own town of Cincinnati, uh, where uh, when the uh, country tried to uh, it did um, nationalize time and create some our national time zones, uh, this is the 1880s. Cincinnati, Cleveland, and from a bunch of other uh, local communities all tried to reject this organization of time. They wanted to stick with what was known as local time, which is told by the sun, rather than by um, this artificial calculation by the government. Uh, eventually, they gave in, and we abide by that now. But um, who controls time and how they control it is always uh, is one of these enduring questions. So when you get to the audience itself, um, in terms of broadcasting, um, they understand, uh, well, it's the schedule. The schedule then becomes the enactment of uh, time and uh, the audience understands that in order to get the benefit, if there's a benefit to be gotten, they have to show up at the right hour, they have to stick around for the entire duration of the performance, and uh, they have to deal with whatever comes in between in the forms of the ads and other kinds of sides. Well, one thing that um, you mentioned in the book is that there was a period, or at least to some extent, there was a time when um, radio in particular was actually somewhat less sort of something happens and you have to be there and you have to sit there and listen to it, that there was, it was two-way to a certain degree. Um, could you tell us a bit about kind of when radio was two-way communication between presenters and audiences and sort of how this sort of thing shifted over time? Yes, the um, well, in the period between roughly... 1899, 1900, and the advent of broadcasting in 1920. Um, this is principally the amateur period of radio, um, and uh, there weren't audiences in term, 
groups of big audiences of groups of people listening in on things. And in fact, if you were listening in, you probably had to be uh, understand Morse code or some kind of code because uh, we didn't have um, broad use of audio broadcasting as we know it today until uh, the 19-teens. So in the very earliest de two decades of broadcasting, it was mostly uh, amateurs who had no financial interests. There wasn't any idea for how to make money off of radio in this era. Uh, and they were doing it to entertain themselves. They were doing it to just further their own experiments. The military government used it a bit to communicate. Um, they discovered, of course, that uh, it could be very useful for ships to communicate. That was Marconi's business. Um, but for the amateurs themselves, um, they were just doing it uh, for fun. And um, that reflects a bit of the kind of experimental nature of the Internet in the early days of people just saying, hey, what can I do? Who can I talk to? What groups might I encounter? Um, and it was largely a male-dominated place. It was young boys, uh, and you had to have a certain amount of technical ability to do it. And uh, you had to understand Morse code. You might have to get um, uh, a license from the government to do it, uh, on, depending on the power of your um, um, transmitter. But these were relatively small groups. And so there wasn't this kind of one person talking and lots of people listening, but they were more one-to-one -one conversations where they might be relays where one person would say something and then they'd get another person farther down the line. They'd communicate with them because the radio signals only carried so far. Um, that was the, the, the um, very earliest forms of broadcast, or not broadcasting, but radio communication. And that's when it was two-way. That... Um, increasingly disappeared as you got into broadcasting, partly because uh, broadcasting, uh, you know, there were plenty of people who just enjoyed listening rather than talking. Uh, they did not want to bother learning how to transmit, how to encode their messages. Uh, they didn't have the skill to do it. They didn't have the money to invest in it. And the companies like um, RCA flooded the marketplace with very cheap and easy-to-operate receivers, which made accessing the broadcast experience very convenient to do. And so uh, partly because, uh, well, sort of confluence of factors that sort of led to the, the, the muting of the, of the amateurs, um, again, they didn't entirely disappear, but um, broadcasting certainly overwhelmed uh, what the public took in in the form of radio. Jumping to a different part of the book, um, I was really interested that both in your discussion about radio and about television, um, and also in television even after radio becomes less uh, prevalent, there was such a consistent focus by the broadcasting companies on live content rather than recorded content that seemed to come up again and again and again. Um, why do you think this has been sort of such a consistent preference by the companies? To what extent has it changed over time across radio and television? Yeah, too, um, we have to understand that initially uh, with broadcasting, there really wasn't 
a very good mechanism for recording off the air yet. Not until about 1930 do, do we have the technology to do that pretty effectively. We did, of course, have recordings before that um, with the, 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 the Victrola and the other types of recording machines. So there were records. And in fact, um, a fair amount of the early broadcasting, the content that was put onto early broadcasting were recordings. Uh, they were records that were played. And in fact, um, Frank Conrad, who's uh, started uh, broadcasting in Pittsburgh, you know, eventually established the radio station KDKA, uh, he started by uh, airing just records. And basically what you do is push the microphone closer to the trumpet on the Victrola and that little tinny sound would come out and get translated into electronic signal, which could then be heard by people in the nearby area. So recordings have been there. But um, when it came to network broadcasting, the chief reason that the broadcasters both favored live and disfavored anyone who used recordings was a business proposition. The networks uh, created for themselves a distribution mechanism uh, that was kind of a monopoly. Uh, you would get local stations to sign up to be affiliates of the network, and then you'd force the affiliates to take the content that you, you the network, provided. Uh, and then the business arrangements would carry on from there. Um, Recordings created a separate kind of network potential for a separate kind of uh, distribution stream where someone would recre could recreate a recording and then literally transport it physically by mail or just by carrying it um, to another station who could then play that recording at any time. And that was, a, from a business standpoint, a major threat to the networks. And they wanted to do as much as they could to uh, defeat that possibility. So one is they set up their contracts with their affiliates to reflect live delivery of content. And then two, they um, uh, lobbied with uh, Congress in the writing of the 1927 Act to um, ensure that only uh, live broadcasters would be entitled to the very the most status privileged um, licenses, and in doing so, they sort of uh, normalize the idea of live as the better thing. But in fact, most people, when we actually got to recordings, couldn't really tell the difference, and it didn't really matter that much. But they carried on with this ruse really until the 1940s when CBS finally gave up uh, its demand for all live content. And there were lots of advantages to using recordings, which some of the networks use almost surreptitiously. Uh, they didn't talk a lot about it, but they used them. They didn't want anybody else to use them, though. And so the use of live in radio, anyway, was a business proposition to help maintain the security in the monopoly of the network itself. When it came to television then, we already had a legacy of liveness, 
as some kind of desirable quality. And there was a magical quality about it to some degree that people wrote about. But in television, the main reason that um, they preferred live, or they said they preferred live in television, was that they were dealing with another kind of competition, and that was coming from the movies. Movies were doing quite well at the time, and they were seen as the main competitor to television. Movies were dead. They were recorded. They were projected on the screen. And it was not the same experience as the live TV. And live TV was, you know, in the early days, was just this tiny screen of black and white. And, you know, compared to what we see today, not very good quality. And so they had to do everything they could to make themselves look unique and desirable. And so they talked up live. And they talked about live as the only way to go and that it was uh, somehow, um, it was just intended to, to be better. Um, and uh, they didn't give that up for um, quite some time either. Mm. Arguably, some, some, in some ways, it seems that that's still a part of um, broadcasting, just thinking about kind of sport TV deals and things like that. And sports is, is kind of the last bastion of live broadcasting. Um, virtually all the rest of broadcasting, uh, even the news, um, has um, gone to recording. And sports seems to have kind of a unique quality to it that people are willing to um, enter into the synchronous agreement with. And that's one reason, I think, behind the growth of uh, sports broadcasting. I think you know, like Fox has three or four channels. Uh, Disney, ESPN, ABC has half a dozen channels. Um, I mean, it's just enormous, the amount of uh, live sports programming that's now available. And the reason for that is that it is, makes it very possible for whoever's delivering this broadcast, the live broadcast, to embed into that the advertiser messages. Yeah. Otherwise, um, in asynchronous, other forms of asynchronous delivery, it's too easy for the consumers to um, bypass the advertisements. So they're just not as valuable. So um, live sports programming is still um, very much uh, a strong economic deal for whoever has uh, those rights, although those rights are pretty darn expensive. Mm-hmm. With that idea, though, of sports being the last bastion, that implies that in pretty much all other forms of things that used to be part of uh, synchronized production or synchronized delivery, there's a lot of temporal freedom for consumers now with asynchronous entertainment. Why do you nevertheless consider this to be, quote, real but limited? Right. I think, um, yeah, I think uh, most of the rest of the, the broadcast experience that is the one-to-many experience over visual media um, is largely recorded. Um, and uh, I always think that when one has freedom to choose the time in which they do various things, that's, that seems like a positive. Uh, in the digital world, uh, we still see all of these calls to attend to things in the instant moment. So our messaging structures, uh, they're built to deliver notifications to us in real time. So somebody has just sent us a message in our phone dings or something has happened somewhere and we get a notification of it. 
So we're still compelled to respond in real time, really according to somebody else's dictates. And so if uh, asynchronous media got made us free from the broadcasting, this synchronous broadcasting environment, that may be a win for freedom. But in the meantime, uh, we have also uh, still um, given up more um, in different areas. And uh, we may be choosing to do this. There's certainly plenty of reason why we might want to have notifications of things and, and all of these uh, 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 indicators coming into our various media. But um, I think a lot of it's just defaults. Uh, they may be um, just conventions. And, uh, but in the sum total of it all, we still put ourselves at the uh, temporal mercy of people who are not us. And so I would argue that we're still not choosing as much as we could. Lots of food for thought there as we finish up thinking about the future, having had you thankfully take us through the past and present, help us understand all those things. Um, that leads me only to my final question of, is there anything that you might be working on now or next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this exact subject that you'd like our audience to be aware of? Um, I don't have any major projects at this point. So I, I have a few other ideas extending some things around the schedule. and uh, But uh, yeah, I got nothing uh, too exciting beyond this book. Well, it is a very exciting book. So again, the title of it, for anyone who's been listening, is titled The Synchronized Society, Time and Control from Broadcasting to the Internet, published from Rutgers University Press. Randy, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thank you, Miranda. Appreciate being here.